It's a neighborly day in this beauty wood. A neighborly day for beauty. Would you be mine? Could you be mine? I have always wanted to have a neighbor just like you. I've always wanted to live in a neighborhood with you. So let's make the most of this beautiful day. Since we're together, we might as well say, Would you be mine? Would you be mine? Would you be my neighbor? Won't you please? Won't you please? Please, won't you be my neighbor? Welcome to this neighborhood, neighbor. How many people remember Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood? I know the anybody probably under 20 is looking at it like, people used to watch that. Really? <laughs> he passed away in 2003, and from 1968 to 2003, Fred Rogers encouraged children to learn to care for others around him. His signature song that we just listened to, Won't You Be My Neighbor, exemplified that simple message. No respect and care for the people around you. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. It's going to be the second half of the message that we started last week, that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we're going to be in John chapter 1 in your Bible, in verse 14, if you want to turn there. And I don't know how many people know this about Fred Rogers, but he was an ordained minister of the Presbyterian Church. And he never felt called to preach. But what he did feel called to do is talk to children about being Christ-like. And his message was one that he had heard himself in his own life, and he was echoing the words of his Lord Jesus in every one of the episodes that he did. Now in Luke 10, a teacher of the law stood up and asked Jesus, Jesus, you know, how do we enter into heaven? And Jesus asked him, you know, you're, you're a lawyer, you're, you're an expert in the law, what do you see written in the law? And the teacher of the law turned around and replied, and we said, well, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said, you got an A. Do this correctly. Do this, and you will live. And the teacher of the law asks, as lawyers usually do, they want to parse things down and everything. He goes, who is my neighbor? And that's the question, isn't it? Who do we consider our neighbors? Because right now we live in an incredibly polarized society where we erect fences, we try to demolish people with emotional arguments, we cast logic aside, we identify ourselves by who we vote for, we identify ourselves by which team that we follow, whether you're a Vikings fan or a Packers fan, and we have all these little separations within our society where we want to build walls instead of allowing Jesus to tear them down in our life, and we alienate ourselves from the very people that Jesus left us in the world to go and reach. Another way of seeing this was found in the beginning. After the first recorded murder in the Bible, God asked the murderer Cain, where is your brother, Abel? Where is your brother? And whenever God asks you a question, anybody ever had God ask them a question in prayer? I know I've had. God doesn't need to know the answer. It's not like he's going up there going, hmm, hey, hey, hey. Gabriel, Gabriel, hey, tell the angels just to be quiet. He goes, I want to listen to John's sermon this morning. 
It's not like he. It's not like he's doing that. He's not. When he asks you a question, he's not saying, "I need some information from you," because he already knows it. He is asking you because he is eliciting something out of you that he needs you to see. And then God asked Cain this question was to elicit a response, and he's hoping to get from Cain an immediate prayer saying, God, I don't know what happened. I'm sorry. I, I got angry, and I hit him, and he fell down, and he died. I'm so sorry. And God, that's what God was hoping for. That's what God wanted to, to get out of Cain, was for him to go into immediate repentance. But instead, God, a ver- God got a very hard-hearted and a very cynical answer. Cain said, am I my brother's keeper? I don't know where the guy is. And that same question echoes down thousands of years later to us this morning. Who is my brother and am I my brother's keeper? Well, the Apostle John had some things to say about this. And it has to do with why Jesus came to this earth. And the verse that we are going to look at this morning will answer some of these questions for us. In John chapter 1, verse 14, it says that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And the dwelling is what we're going to be looking at this morning. Let's open in prayer. Father God, we thank you, Lord. I ask, Father, that you just take this small scripture that means so much and help it to just explode in our minds, explode in our spirits, and help us to understand exactly what we are to be to the people that surround us in life. That none of us are here by accident. None of us are in a situation in, that we are in, in life by accident that you have placed us here for such a time as this. And help us to see that through the incarnation of Jesus Christ in the human form and how he lived his life so that we can do the same. Lord God, I ask this in your name and for Jesus' glory. Amen. So what you want to do this morning is answer the question, who is my neighbor and am I my brother's keeper, because when we ask ourselves these questions, it really exposes who we are and the heart of exactly the way we think and do and live our lives. And the teacher of the law, when he asked that question, he, didn't, he asked it because he was afraid of Jesus' answer, frankly. When he said, who is my neighbor, he was hoping, to, he was hoping Jesus was going to say, hey, yeah, I know what you mean. It's not those dirty Gentiles, okay? It's not those, those foreigners over there or those illegal aliens that happen to live among us. It, it's not all those people. It, it, it's just us Jews, okay? Yeah, you don't have to worry about them. That's not the answer he got, was it? Cain didn't like Abel before he killed him. He vented his rage on his brother. And in fact, it didn't even purge that rage from him. It probably hardened him even further. And it's that same cynicism today that we don't want to consider people to be our neighbors. We don't want to consider us to be our brother's keeper. It's seen today, and it's why the church in America often doesn't want to witness about their faith. It's why the church in America doesn't want to give of themselves their talents or their finances toward the church. It's why the church in America often doesn't even want to live as a citizen of the kingdom of God or live kingdom lives under the authority of our King Jesus. But isn't that why Jesus came to us? 
Isn't that why He came and took on human form and came down to this earth so we can see exactly how He lived and follow Him like He lived? If we really want to dig into the mysteries of God, what are the things you're going to need? Is a good interlinear Bible and something like Vine's definitions to understand what's written in the original language. Because sometimes there's so much depth there that it's missed when you translate it from Greek into English. And that's what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at a particular word that John uses here and spend the rest of our time here looking at it this morning. And the word in the Greek language is skinu. It's the word that is used for the word became flesh and dwelt. That word dwelt is skinu. We're going to look at, explore those meanings today to fully understand how the word became flesh and skinu'd among us. And the first meaning of skinu is this. It means encamp. In other words, Jesus came to encamp around us. Now the word camp is a military term. It means to be set up your forces in battle readiness, expecting an attack or getting ready to attack. You see, Jesus came to this earth to fight a battle. And you automatically think that the battle was fought on the cross. But that wasn't the first skirmish in this war. The first skirmish that is when Jesus fought with himself in the garden. That's really where the victory was made. We talk about the cross, and I'm not taking away the power of that cross at all, but the real battle was Jesus fighting with himself in the garden. You remember the record of him. It's in, it's in all the Gospels of him agonizing in prayer with the Father God, begging him to take away that cup of suffering that God was going to be giving him and placing upon him. And inside this cup was beatings. It was mockings. It was the floggings that tore chunks of skin off of his body. It was a, the cup contained the tearing off of his beard, the crown of thorns that was thrust into his scalp, and finally the nails driven through the hands and feet that fastened him to the cross, naked for everyone to see. You see, Jesus being God knew exactly what was in that cup. And Jesus fights a battle against his human nature. And he does so in prayer in the garden. And it said that in the garden he was in such agony and so under such distress that it said his blood actually, or his sweat actually became blood. And that's, a, that's an actual medical condition that you and I could have. It's called hemotidrosis. It's a condition where the capillary blood vessels that feed the sweat glands rupture. And so the sweat becomes blood and, and pours out of you. And it happens under extreme physical and emotional distress, such as fear. And three times Jesus cries out to God to take this cup away from him, for him not to have to go to the cross. And three times there is silence from heaven. Finally, Jesus bends his human will to the will of God. And the Bible says that it was then that the angels attended him. And that's a lesson for all of us. God's silences are not necessarily God's denials. It's not necessarily God being angry or disappointed with you. Often God's silences are because there is something in our lives that you are struggling with about. And he wants you to surrender your will to his will. 
And when that happens, we'll know His presence. We'll know His power. We'll know His blessing upon our life. Because you only see it through us bending our will to His. The angels did not come to Jesus until Jesus bent His knee before His Father God and said, Not my will, but Thine be done. The word becoming flesh and dwelling with us means that Jesus came to encamp in our lives and destroy the work of the enemy. The old prophet Joel explained the mission of Jesus this way. In Joel 2.25 he said, I will restore to you the years of the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. He's talking about the different kinds of locusts, and that's just an entire different sermon series in itself right there. The different ways that the devil tries to get in and destroy our lives. But Jesus didn't suffer, die, and rise again just to pay for your sins. He did it to restore to you everything that the devil has stolen from you over the years. Anybody remember that old praise song, I went into the enemy's camp and I took back what he stole from me? Well, that's true. Jesus is coming as that mighty warrior and camping about you, and he wants to do just that for you this morning. But it wasn't just the battle. It wasn't like so many of the wars that, that you see our nation fight today, that you go in, you fight, and then you leave. No, Jesus came to occupy, and that's the second meaning of skinu. Let me ask you a few history questions that, to, that will kind of bring this into perspective with, for us. What happened when we pulled south of the 38th parallel in Korea? We lost all that land. I don't know if you know, December 1950, we were encamped on the border of China and Korea. And we gave up all that land. And as soon as we left that land, the enemy came right back in. What happened when we tro started pulling troops out of Vietnam? It fell to the communist forces of the north. What happened when we started to pull out of Iraq? ISIS formed. What happens when we started to pull out of Afghanistan? The Taliban came right back. What does that tell us? That what does the, the natural world, when we do these kind of things, tell us about the spiritual? You can't defeat the enemy and then leave it open for him to come back. Jesus tells it like this in this parable in, in Matthew uh, 1243 Jesus is teaching he says when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person it passes through waterless places seeking rest but finds none and then it says I'll return to my house from which I came and when it comes he finds the house empty swept and put in order and then it goes and brings with it seven more spirits more evil than itself and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So it will be with this evil generation. Here is a scenario that Jesus is speaking to, and it reflects many in the church today. A person comes and they admit they're a sinner. They believe that Jesus, they believe in Jesus, and they come to him in repentance. Jesus comes, puts his apron on, cleans your whole spiritual house. He goes, he clears all those cobwebs out, sweeps the floor, vacuums the rug, dusts the end table, takes out the garbage. House is nice and clean now. But what is the condition of that house after all the cleaning is done? It's, still, it's empty. It's an empty clean house, but it's still empty. 
All that garbage we allow the enemy to hoard in our spiritual closets might be gone. The piles of refuge that, that's filled our spiritual living room might be out there on the curb. All the dishes are dried and put away. But the house is still empty. And that's what happens when people have a quote-unquote salvation experience. They live for joy and thankfulness for a short time about what Jesus has done for them, but they never stop and ask Jesus to come in and take up residence within you. You see, they want the benefit of Jesus, but they don't want the presence of Jesus in their life. And you saw that over and over again in the Old Testament. People would have this huge spiritual experience and be filled with the Holy Spirit. They'd be joyful and dancing and, and, be, and walking around with the prophets. But there was never this abiding presence. They got filled and said, wow, that's incredible. I, I love God. I, I love Jesus and all that. But all that spiritual power they were filled with leaked right back out. And they went right back to the way they were. And that is why the Word became flesh and occupied us and came into us. John 10.10 says that the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus said that I have come so that they might have life and have it to the full. Because Jesus knows that if he does not take up residence in the house he just cleaned, then he just will lose that house. Remember how we saw it in the physical history of this planet? It happens in the spiritual also. And that was the point of Calvary's cross. It wasn't just to get your sins forgiven. It wasn't just to restore people back onto God. You see, really, it wasn't about us at all. It was about God's desire to live inside the creation that he made and wanted to inhabit. And that's the third meaning of dwelt or skinu. That Jesus came to reside or inhabit the temple that he has always wanted. The whole reason for the creation of man was to give God a dwelling place within a creature. God instituted the Mosaic and Levitical form of worship as proper ways of worshiping him. And in response, humanity made huge temples, spent a whole lot of money on expensive tools, arcs, stands, curtains, fire pits, and other articles used in worship. In fact, there was so much wealth given to the original form of worship as seen in the tabernacle that Moses actually had to beg the people to quit giving. He said, quit giving the priests money, quit giving the money to the church. One and only time in history a pastor's ever not asked for money, right? And God responded favorably at first to that. And his presence filled that tabernacle with such an overwhelming manifestation of his glory that not even Moses could stand it. Moses, Moses had to stand outside of it because there's so much God in there. But just like all things Old Testament, that faded. And it faded because with all of its symbolism that we see in the Old Testament, with all the pageantry, with all of its ceremony, with all the exactness of the sacrifice of various animals that were used in worship, Hebrews 10.4 tells us that the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. And it means that the Old Testament system of worship was a house that could never be totally swept clean. It could never be spiritually sanitized so that God's presence could dwell there. Or not even really hold a small portion of God's presence for any length of time before our sinful humanity drove God's presence out again. 
And that's why the Word became flesh and dwelt or resided among us. Jesus came so that the entirety of the Godhead could dwell inside the temple that they have always wanted and that they created us to be. They wanted us to be God's temple. And think about that for a moment. It wasn't God's plan that he was to be found in the largest and the most beautiful cathedrals. God wasn't want a fancy temple made of stone. He isn't impressed by megachurches or the cathedrals you see over in Europe. He isn't impressed by a, a multi-million dollar campus. But watch God when a sinner repents. See the angels stop their praise for a moment and gaze in wonder as a human soul is redeemed. Like the famous hymn says that no angel in the sky, in the sky can fully bear that sight, but downward bends his wondering eyes at mysteries so bright. When a person repents and turns from their sins, it's just like Moses hanging that final curtain in the tabernacle. Or Solomon placing that final piece in the temple or 120 disciples praying in an upper room. It's an explosion of God's power. It's a house that is in order. And God comes and moves into our lives, our soul and our spirits, are set free to worship and live for Him. That's the Word becoming flesh and dwelling and camping, occupying and residing in our spirits. And when Jesus comes and encamps and chooses to occupy and then takes up residence in your life, there's a response that should be in the natural. If indeed Jesus is doing all of this in your life, there's a response that I'm going to share that is actually found in John 1.14 from the Message Bible Translation. And it says it like this. It said that the Word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. Last year, our district superintendent, I forgot to bring it this morning, but he gave us a figurine that's cut out, just 114. And he was talking about... Um, and he wanted the, the, neighbor, the uh, district churches to focus on being intentional about neighboring and be in prayer for our district because he's retiring this year. We have to pick a new superintendent this year. But he really wanted that our congregations to be intentional about neighboring because he saw the same thing that the rest of us are seeing in these verses. And I want you to think about this. When you decided to follow Jesus, Jesus moved into you. He literally took up residence inside of you. He moved into your neighborhood. And because of that, Jesus moved into your family. Because of that, Jesus moved and became neighbors with your friends through you. He became neighbors to your workplace people because of you. That means that the people living on your right, your left, or down the street, or over the next hill are Jesus' neighbors. And it's our job and our application of this scripture is to show them what kind of neighbor Jesus can be. That might mean you help them snowblow or shovel this year. 
That might mean you help them rake their lawn or offer to attend their pets while they're away. Maybe Jesus needs, a ba- or needs to babysit their kids when their child care for work falls through. Maybe even do it free of charge on those regular or irregular occasions. In other words, if Jesus was your neighbor, he would be very intentional about loving you. It wouldn't be something of, hmm, yeah, I see my neighbor out there struggling with all that snow. Let me go pray about it and see if Jesus moves me to, to go help him. No, Jesus would say, yes, I get to go and show love to this person by helping them shovel. And frankly, let's be honest, most of us could probably use a little exercise, right? Jesus would be intentional about loving his neighbor. And in doing so, he would answer that cynical question of of Cain's, am I my brother's keeper? Yeah. Yes. Absolutely you are. Or the question posed to Jesus by the teacher of the law, who is my neighbor? And the answer to that is whoever God allows across your path. Whoever you work with, whoever you live with, whoever you share life with. It doesn't matter if they're Christians. It doesn't matter if they're in another political party. It doesn't matter if they follow the Vikings, the Packers, or any other NFL team, or don't follow the NFL at all. It doesn't matter their accent. It doesn't matter their skin color. I know that's hard for people who live in Whitehall because we don't have a lot of people with other skin colors. But it does not matter. It doesn't matter if their culture is different. It doesn't matter if they speak our language. And it doesn't matter if they're here legally or illegally. They are still your neighbor and still deserve the love of Jesus. They are still our neighbors. And God, from eternity past, placed them in our lives so that we can shine that love of Jesus into their darkness. The Word became flesh and it dwelt among us. Jesus moved into our spiritual neighborhood. Let's do the same for our neighbors. Let's all stand. Father God, I just ask, Lord, that you just take the words that you gave me this morning and more importantly, use the power of the Word of God to give us a desire to reach out to those that we live with those that we work with, those who are somehow within our sphere of influence. And Father, I will even go further and ask a bold prayer, even those people we don't like, even those people who have done us wrong, even those people who we can't even stand to hear their name, help us to love them into the kingdom. Because somebody did that for us. And even if we don't even remember all the people who helped bring us into the kingdom, I remember the one person who did, and his name was Jesus. And it's him who we follow. So Lord God, I ask, Father, that you soften our hearts, that you touch our spirits, and enable us to to be able to stand before you one day and be able to answer those two questions as you did. They are my neighbor, Lord, and I am their keeper. Father God, I ask, Lord, as you do this surgery within our spirits through the power of your word, that you will just bring us to a place, Father, 
where we say, Jesus, you have everything in our life. And let us live lives of impact for the kingdom of God and serve you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. I bless your people with that prayer right now. And I ask this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen.